Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. Here we hope to convene conversations related to philosophy, politics, spirituality, history, a number of topics that are important and contemporary to our age. Today we have an exciting discussion today, inshallah, on the topic of consciousness and consciousness being an immaterial reality looking at the history of it, looking at the social consequences of it, looking at where consciousness is exactly. And um, I think a lot of this information is going to be quite eye-opening for many people. Today we have Brother Ali, who is joining us, who is a biochemistry and neuroscience graduate. He recently completed his PGCE in science. And for those who follow him on Twitter, um, or on or has seen his social media, they know that he has an interest on the topics related to the intersection of science, religion, philosophy, and sociology. So thank you for joining us, Ali. Jazakallah khair wa alaykum assalam. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's get straight into it. So consciousness is really today, it's a, it's a topic which is um, in the realm of philosophy. Uh, it's It's very contentious because you have people who hold different sides some saying consciousness is immaterial some saying consciousness is ma- is a material phenomenon um but just at the onset i think the important and the the big question to really tackle is what is consciousness right what do we mean when we say that this person is conscious what do we mean when you know like like for example where are our thoughts so it's it's a big question but ali i'll let i'll let you start the conversation yeah jazakallah khair um i think if I begin with um, David Sharma's, who's who's an excellent philosopher of mind, I think he decides to basically demarcate or divide this problem between what he calls the easy problem and what he calls the hard problem. Now, what he means by the easy problem are those kinds of things we can solve in psychology and neuroscience that are to do with functional concepts. Um, so to do with your actions, to do with very simple cognition. The hard problem is hard when you think about it philosophically, but easy when you think about it in terms of everyday life. If you go up to a tree, there's something it feels like to see that tree. There's something it feels like to see that red on an apple. And it's that intrinsic feeling, that image that you have in your mind, the feeling of that image um, that we call consciousness. Now, it's the most immediate thing to us, yet it eludes us in terms of broader understanding. So you can have conscious experiences, not just in the visual sense, but when you smell something, when you hear something, when you touch something, there's something it feels like. There is an emotion, more than just an emotion, actually. There is a subjective experience, which which is the term that we use. There's something it feels like to hear, to taste, to smell, to perceive. And that's what it is. It's, It's so immediate to us that we don't even question why we should question it sometimes at least for the ordinary person mm-hmm. it's like it's almost as if you know we we are unaware of our consciousness like it's just something which we think is just present that's just always there but we don't really get time to think about you know where exactly is this conscious being right where is consciousness in and of itself right traditionally they say that consciousness is in the brain right for example, if you watch sports, you'll see in football, when, when people get head injuries, right, they knock out, they lose consciousness, right? Um, but, all, but, but, but is consciousness really inside of the brain or is it somewhere else? 
I think this is probably the most contentious thing that's uh, that's debated today, and it depends on your philosophical stance. What I've understood, um, if we're just talking about the brain, I've come to understand that depending on your prior philosophical commitments, you will project your ideas on what you're going to understand. You're going to set what I like to call the boundaries. Um, and so, you know, this question really depends on what your philosophical commitments are. And it doesn't matter how absurd they might seem. And I've seen some philosophers make some pretty absurd comments, uh, which we, we can talk about. Um, but it depends. If you're a materialist, you're going to believe that it's definitely in the brain. Or you might believe, as some do, that it's consciousness doesn't exist, which to me mm -hmm. sounds crazy. But you've got people yeah. like that. Um, and then you've got, um, you know, you've got some pantheistic beliefs. And some people are now going for that. They think consciousness is in everything. Um, and then you've got theists, obviously, who have some kind of idea of the soul, but then they debate on what the soul is and whether it's in the body, connected to the body, above the body, part of the body. There's different mm -hmm. kinds of souls. Um, this is where territory gets a bit murky. In my okay. Opinion. So, you know, in reality, there's kind of like two major camps into the topic of consciousness. Either it's something which is physical, which mm -hmm. is material, something that we can use, you know, like a telescope. Um, we can use some sort of science, a, a material science to find it right mm -hmm. somewhere in the somewhere in the brain. There's something called consciousness that we can see. Um, but then there's the other perspective, which is the one that, that we incline to, which is, is that it's immaterial mm -hmm. is that you cannot find it. You cannot use any of these, any telescopes, any of these inventions to find it. For example, mm -hmm. right now, both of us right now are thinking, mm -hmm. right? I don't know what you're thinking about. I'm thinking about, you know, the next words that are going to come on my tongue. But mm -hmm. where are these thoughts specifically? Mm -hmm. Right. Can, mm -hmm. can we find, can we get a microscope and look into the brain and see this is what Ahmed's thoughts are. This is what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Right. These things, these things, they don't really exist. So uh, in the realm of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the realm of philosophy, in the realm of neuroscience today, um, they have what you just touched upon called the hard problem of consciousness. Mm. where they're trying to find some sort of material existence for the consciousness. But, right? Uh, absolutely. absolutely. Go ahead, go ahead. It's, it's really interesting because the debate has become, in my opinion, and people can disagree, it's become a bit murky. What they're trying to do is they're trying to sort of semantically evade the problem sometimes. That's what I've noticed. You'll get, I mean, there's loads of neuroscientific theories. If we're just talking about neuroscience here, there's global workspace theory. Um, there's uh, integrated information theory. But when you look at the theories, they kind of miss the point because what they do is they're still explaining a functional aspect of your consciousness. Mm -hmm. They're explaining okay. why you can make certain actions, why you can hold certain memories, and even memories to, to a degree. We're talking about the mechanistic function of it. Um, so higher order functions. But what they don't touch upon is that that question that we've been asking, why does it feel like anything to be like something? Why does it, why does it feel like Ali to, 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 you know, when I talk about myself, it feels like something, you know, because actually just from a logical process, you know, if we're just doing complete logic, there is no contradiction in me saying all the things I've said to you, spending my entire life history from when I was born all the way till now, doing and saying everything I did, and having no experience whatsoever, none whatsoever. Okay. There is no logical contradiction between that, uh, within that. So the question then arises is, why are we conscious? Even from an evolutionary point of, point of view, even if you take you know, sort of the hard line reductionist program, mm -hmm. 
why should I involve consciousness? Did I did I involve consciousness uh, to hunt? Well, I don't really need that. Did I need consciousness to live? No, I don't really need that. So mm-hmm. why has this come about? And what kind of evolutionary mechanism could even purport to explain why exactly. such a thing has come about? It seems to me there is none. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, something I find so fascinating is that, you know, when you eat food, you know, you're eating mm-hmm. something which is material. And mm-hmm. if you eat a lot of food, your body will gain weight. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But when you read a lot of books, when you acquire a lot of knowledge, you're not gaining any weight. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Because the knowledge in and of itself is immaterial mm-hmm. and the knowledge is located within something which is immaterial in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can read thousands of thousands of books and you can have all that information in your consciousness right in, mm-hmm. in your mind mm-hmm. but it's not going to increase in your way and you can't find that knowledge either you can't say i'm going to go into a person's brain and find you know uh, the history of the ottoman empire and you know calculate all of it right mm-hmm. i mean i mean with languages it's interesting though oh yeah certain, right that there's certain yeah. portions of the brain in which you know you could you could literally remove and you know the person like you can Correct me if I'm wrong, but you can like extract, like, like, for example, I know, let's say I know Arabic, English and Urdu, mm-hmm. right? A surgeon can go and actually remove the portion of my brain that knows Arabic, correct? Well, you can not necessarily, I guess you, you could damage it enough, but we, we can't get up to that point. At least I think, and I might be wrong here, but you can't. Com- so you can functionally impair someone for sure. But to get to that precise level where we where we know that you, we're going to knock this out for sure, um, I don't think we're quite at that level yet. Um, perhaps because of our understanding of neurons. But again, I'd, I'd have to come back to you on that one. Mm-hmm. So, um, n- n- so now I want to bring the interesting point is what is the Islamic perspective on this topic of consciousness? Um, according to Islam, where is consciousness? Where where does it lie? And are there multiple features like the Quran? Like the Quran will talk about, you know, the qalb, the heart. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about the aql, which is the intellect. They'll talk about the ruh, which is, you know, the soul or the spirit. Um, mm. Do any of these have anything to do with consciousness? I believe so. I believe so. Um, so my reading has basically led me to conclude that, you know, I think the Quran actually talks about this as well, where, you know, the angels are asked about the soul and God says to them, you know, um, I've given you little knowledge on on this particular fact. And I think I think there's a good reason for it, because this is kind of excluded from material observation or material investigation so we can we can really only know so much about it either through ourselves or through revelation mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and so and, and I... j- j- just to build on that just just to build on that so yeah. um during the time of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam um the quraish um they you know they had troubles understanding prophecy mm-hmm. right they mm-hmm. you know it was it was a pagan society and they didn't really have the concept of, of prophethood um mm-hmm. well they, they didn't have knowledge of what prophethood entailed mm-hmm. and so what they did is they went to the jews that were in medina mm-hmm. and they said you are you 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 people understand prophecy you've had many prophets mm-hmm. so explain to us what are some questions we should ask the prophet sallallahu the, the, the prophet um or this man who claims to be a prophet um so we can figure out whether he's a prophet or not mm-hmm. and one of the questions the Jew, the Jew, uh, the Jews told them to ask is to mm-hmm. ask the prophet about the nature of the soul. Mm-hmm. And so the Quraysh went back and they asked the prophet, وسلم, they asked him, what is the nature of the soul? If you're a so-called prophet, why can't explain to us what the soul is? 
And immediately the Prophet ﷺ did not respond. He did not give them an answer. And this is one of the miracles, I think, of prophethood is that had the Prophet ﷺ been a liar, as some people claim, he would have given them an answer right away. But he waited. And while he waited, they continued to mock him over and over again until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to him the ayat ruh, that you know they ask you about the nature of the soul the nature of it the knowledge of it belongs to Allah alone and as for you the knowledge that you've been given is only a little and one of the interesting things about the story is I'm not sure if it was at the beginning or at the end but the Jews in Medina, when they found out what the Prophet ﷺ said, they stayed quiet because they knew that they asked him a question which no human being had the answer to mm-hmm. and that no human being will ever have the answer to. Because, Precisely. Right? Because the soul is something which is in the realm of God. And when we're dealing with consciousness, we're really dealing with an entity which is you know, similar to the heart, the soul. And we'll get into this later, but I just wanted to give some context as to when this verse was revealed. Absolutely. And I, I think that it's really important. I think it's also important to understand that Muslims are not uncomfortable with the idea that it's okay not to know something in its entirety. And if you go back in history and you just look at some of the debates that were happening in, in, in sort of the 17th century Europe, um, when, you know, huge developments were taking place. And this is really the time when Aristotelian metaphysics was going out the window. And because they had based their religion so much on it, it kind of, you know, the entire castles decided started to crumble. Um, and what was central to that was actually the question of the soul. And they couldn't handle it. You know, they couldn't bear their, their tradition at that stage, wasn't able to sort of cope with that because they almost thought we needed an answer um, especially when they committed themselves to a certain kind of metaphysic. Um, and I think, and this is just my opinion, I think Islam tends to make a minimal set of, uh, you know, uh, gives a minimal set of ideas to this kind of thing. So it's not that our scholars don't approach it, mm-hmm. they don't debate it, or they don't try and find sort of answers to it. But there's always that sort of pushback to say, there will never be a answer to this question because it does belong to the realm of the answer. Exactly. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, does that mean that we don't, you know, that we stop, you know, thinking about these things? No. I mean, you can always sort of project your ideas according to the latest philosophical movement, play around with them, you know, have a bit of tug of war. Um, but at the end of the day, I think our position has been, and I might be wrong on this, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, has been we can engage with this topic, but don't expect to come out with some absolutism about, you know, what the soul is and how yeah. it works with the body, um, because these are really questions for the unknown. Exactly. And so, I, so I, I think the way the scholars understood it is this verse indicates that you will never truly understand the nature of the soul, just as you'll you know never truly understand divine decree. But at the same time, the scholars took the challenge of trying to see and you know, just trying to dig a bit deep into what the nature of the soul is. And so one of the things that they concluded is that in the Quran, when we have discussions related to the heart, the intellect, uh, yes. and the soul, all of these really are, are one phenomenon. They're mm-hmm. just kind of diff- uh, one example that, that they had is they said that, that, that the whole entity is called the heart, mm-hmm. right? And within the heart, you had something called the aql, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the intellect. 
which mm. is the portion of uh, uh, of the heart which deals with rational inquiry, with critical thinking, right? That that's the aql. And then there's also the ruh, right, which is the soul, the spirit, and that is where they some of them say that that's where the fitra is located, right? Mm. The natural dispossession, dispensation, dispossession uh, in the uh, in the human being, which mm. affirms the existence of God. Mm. Um, and in a general form of morality, but that overall, this is all within the heart. And mm. so, for example, Allah says in the Quran, mm. that they have hearts, but they don't understand with it, mm. right? So, some mm. of them say these terms are all one entity, but they're just the terms in and of, in and of itself are interchangeable. Mm. But in reality, um, from, from what I've read, it seems that in the Islamic perspective, consciousness actually is not necessarily in the mind, but it's in the heart. Yes. That yes. there's a relationship between the two and the two function together. Mm, absolutely. And there's a pull between your nafs and towards, you know, the the divine light. And, you know, the soul is in constant struggle with that. Um, I think one of the reasons that's been eliminated from our modern discourse is because you don't want to have that normative standard attached to a concept like the soul that mm -hmm. you don't want. Because you see, if you look at all of what we've just said, we're basically putting a heuristic on a particular concept to try and understand it better. And that's what people do with the soul. So, you know, for example, in Islam, we've talked about what we just have. Um, other people, they try and divorce all of that because they want the soul to just be, mm -hmm. either to not exist at all, or to just be something that's there to help us explain the material universe um, as per se um, and to see where the boundaries are so it's really interesting because I've always thought the normative considerations from the soul and what the soul is have always been kind of divorced in modern discourse there's no oh this is what the soul is leaning towards maybe the reason why we have consciousness is because we need to know God in a particular way that other creatures might not be able to so mm -hmm. you see we don't even go to that part of the discussion exactly uh, we don't even even bother with it. But it, it really leads into a nice little segue, which is um, one of the things I've thought about a lot is why have consciousness? Um, what is the point of consciousness? Uh, and I think it's to be able to recognize God in ways which no one else currently can or other creatures can't, or you can mm -hmm. experience God. There's phenomenology. So there's experiences we can have that nobody, that no other creature can have. And th there's ways mm -hmm. we can know God um, that other creatures can't. And it might be fundamental to the nature of actually understanding the soul, but obviously in our modern, you know, philosophical because of positivist rhetoric, we're not going to treat the soul that way. We're not going to exactly. think about souls having ends in of themselves. You know, and, and, and you know, like, like Aristotle said, um, the definition of a, of a human being is that which is a rational creature, mm -hmm. right? The, you, you can look at any creature that is out there, any pet that you have, mm -hmm. they, all have they all have instincts, Right, mm -hmm. and those those instincts really want uh, are there to protect them, to protect them mm -hmm. from harm, and for mm -hmm. you know for them to get some food. Um, mm -hmm. But no species outside of the humans, as far mm -hmm. as our material sciences are concerned, has mm -hmm. a form of rational inquiry, mm -hmm. which allows it to really reflect, to ponder mm -hmm. upon itself, and to ponder upon the creation. Right, mm -hmm. animals, as far as we know, don't have something like that. Right, mm -hmm. they may have a sense of rationality and that um, harm is coming and so I'm going to move the other way but the idea to think the mm. idea to think about these big questions of big existence that's mm. ultimately the reason why humans run the world right mm. humans mm. are not the strongest species out there apes are far stronger 
You have mm. tigers, you have lions, right? Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. reason human beings have got to this remarkable state where we can do this podcast, mm. right? Even though I'm in America, you're in the UK, is because of the power of the human mm. intellect. Um, mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is an immaterial phenomenon and not a material phenomenon, which bothers many people. It, it does. Um, and there's also, also, this actually, getting a little bit technical, this also depends on where you draw the line for rationality. Because I've seen different people define it in different ways. I was, I was reading, recently reading a book on the philosophy of psychology. And in it, I actually found out for the first time, there's many, many different definitions of rationality and how you sort of conceive of it. Um, but one of the things I've always thought is, can you divorce consciousness from rationality? Is it even possible for you to do that? Mm -hmm. um, and to maybe some degree, maybe you can, maybe there are certain intuitions, maybe there are certain, you know, mechanical tasks that you can do that maybe computers can do. But as far as I understand, there, there is a level, you know, especially when it comes to art, and this is really important, when it comes to artistic expression, and I use art in the way that um, Alija Ali Sobigovic kind of uses it, where he talks about art as the entire spectrum of, of, of human creativity. So, mm -hmm. you know, okay. all the way from music to paintings. And you can consider that a form of rationality, you know, to be able to make those things. But those paintings and those drawings, the reason they acquire the significance that they do is linked to what I would call a horizon of meaning that comes out of individual people's consciousness. And so if you kind of link all those ideas together, you realize a lot of the conversations you and I are having and everything else that's going on in the world, some of the things that we sort of, we value the most, they wouldn't exist if you didn't have this. But then you understand people have transcendental experiences, which is something I think gets really, really underplayed really underplayed in this debate about consciousness, that many people will say with their whole hearts, I've had an experience. I've had this experience of uh, transcendence. You know, uh, maybe it was, you know, listening to music. I'm talking about, you know, when we're talking about in the Western world and in the materialistic world, even these people, they'll say, you know, I felt something or something there. Or, you know, I, I went on holiday, right, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. on my annual leave. And I, I saw the hills and something happened to me. But they'll never link it with consciousness and how it's a miracle and all of that. Mm -hmm. Do you see? There's a social aspect to this, completely divorced from the debate. Exactly. Be... Mm. Exactly. And I think that's one thing people don't don't realize is that, you know, for those people who deny, you know, consciousness, right, which mm -hmm. is immaterial, um, they're they're really denying, you know, they're they're using the consciousness to deny the existence of the consciousness. Yeah. 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 And. You've got philosophers that actually do that. And I don't disagree with their sort of, uh, their, in, uh, their, their intellects. There's an irony in me saying that right now, but you know, they, they, I don't disagree with them. Uh -huh. um, I, I respect them quite a lot. So, you know, you've got Keith Frankish um, and you've got the Churchlands. Uh, Keith Frankish is an amazing philosopher. Um, and, uh, you know, I enjoyed some of his works. Um, and alongside him, I guess, alongside with Keith would be Daniel Dennett, who's a bit more infamous than that. Uh, I think we've all heard of him because he's been part of the New Atheist Group. And I actually read his new book on this, um, From Bacteria to Bark and Bark. Now, these three camps, the Churchlands, Dennett and Keith, believe in something. Uh, they believe consciousness is an illusion. Hmm. Um, and they kind of go about doing that. Um, and I guess... Um, you know, to put it in really simple terms, um, David Chalmers just comes back to that. And he, he really, in a very nice way, says it's, it's kind of absurd because and I'm really dumbing down the position here. But you have to have consciousness to make any comment about consciousness. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a bit of a 
you know, it, it's a really bad circle that you're going to go into. Mm-hmm. But to me, it just shows the desperation. Uh, you know how theists get this a lot. You know, you're trying to put religion into science. This is such a great example of you trying to force materialism onto something that you can't. And because of that, what's happened? The other side of people who are actually genuine, who are still atheists and materialists, like Thomas Nagel, um, like um, Philip Goff, they, although somebody asked for me, Philip might be a theist, so I'm not sure about that. But what they've tried to do, at least Nagel for sure, is that everything is conscious. So in this little box that we call materialism, we need to make the box a bit bigger now and say that consciousness is actually part of materialism. Right now, to me, that's a very get out of jail free card. Exactly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, so everything is conscious from like the smallest atom in the world is conscious, not to the level that we are, but it has proto consciousness. I um, mean, you know, doesn't doesn't that sound like animism? The idea yeah. that there's souls and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, typical Renaissance <laughs> animism to me. Um, right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it does. It does. Sometimes it does. Um, But believe it or not. Um, apart from, you know, it's started to gain some serious weight. And that philosopher I mentioned at the beginning, David Chalmers, he's eventually reached that conclusion as well, because there's there's only two conclusions you're going to read. Mm-hmm. You're either kind of going to become an eliminated materialist or a, an illusionist, like Keith likes to call it, and say consciousness is just an illusion. You know, it's mm-hmm. just this little theater that you play in your mind. It doesn't actually have objective existence. Okay. Okay. And obviously, I'm, I'm dumbing it down. Obviously, these philosophers have done a lot of work in trying to sort of expound this idea. However, you know, that's one end. And the other extreme end that we've got now is everything is conscious. Panpsychism, as it's known. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, you know, it's, it's really their inability to find empirical proof that consciousness is, is material that allows them to arrive at all of these absurd conclusions, which they even understand. Is, uh, is contradictory. Um, but I wanted to go back to an interesting point. We talked about the, the co- consciousness being in the heart. Mm-hmm. And there's a phenomenal book, which I think, uh, I remember, I, I never read it, but I read the review of it that blew my mind. It's mm-hmm. called A Change of Heart, A Memoir. And it's actually written by this woman in the UK. It's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a, an autobiographical account mm-hmm. where she, uh, she had heart problems and so she mm-hmm. needed heart transplant surgery mm-hmm. and so she waited and waited you know trying to see if there was a heart available that she could tr- switch with hers mm-hmm. and the doctors had informed her that we found a heart mm-hmm. right somebody somebody gracefully has donated it mm-hmm. and she went ahead and did the heart transplant surgery and this is a 60 year old white woman you know loves reading you know very liberal and mm-hmm. She said that after I had the heart transplant surgery, mm-hmm. um, I started developing a taste for junk food, mm-hmm. which I never had in my life. Mm-hmm. She said I had this deep desire of wanting to own a motorcycle and start driving, you know, and buying my own motorcycle. And she said I started to have all these uh, interests in things that a young person would have, like a young middle-aged male would have. And so what she did then is she went and did research and tried to figure out whose heart she acquired, right? <laughs> it's illegal. It's illegal. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. she went and she started doing some research. And what she found is that just a couple of days or a week before her surgery, there was a middle-aged man, mm-hmm. a young boy around, you know, 20s, who got into a 
car accident with his motorcycle and died. And after she found that out, she contacted the family and she found out that that was the heart that is now in her. And so what ultimately she concluded is that within the heart, there are a person's desires, a person's interests. And if you have a heart transplant surgery uh, and you switch hearts, those desires will, will manifest within you. And what's fascinating is if you read the review of this book, you know, some of the comments, you can even find this on the Amazon page, is you have comments from nurses who state that they've dealt with this situation many times during their experience. And this is not a strange or a rare phenomenon. It occurs when you have heart transplant surgery. So again, it goes back to this topic of what exactly is the heart in and of itself? Because we tend to think that the brain is responsible for all of these faculties and the heart is really just there to pump blood. But the more we look into it, the more we realize that there's more to the heart than simply just pumping blood and that consciousness in and of itself and things like the aql and the intellect are also within it. Mm. I think one of the things that we really need to understand is that the metaphysics of something is something uh, we can't just rule out by material investigation. I, I, I don't think enough people. Um, I, I was watching one of you know a recent podcast that you had about prophetic medicine, for example. Um, and you know, if the Prophet said something, he said it. It might be we to this day don't know perhaps the physical benefit. I'm not doubting that at all, but also the metaphysical benefit of something. And we might never know that. And we might overlook that because we can't find some kind of particular materialistic empirical investigation that verifies it. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. Very similar to that, actually, are near death experiences. Another thing which lots of doctors and nurses comment about, that people who have near death experiences feel like they got pulled out and then they got pulled in. Now, mm. what was that thing that got pulled out and got pulled in? It's <laughs> fascinating. And you won't hear this just once. You'll hear about near-death experiences quite a bit. And I've heard about this from a lot of people that they said, we almost felt like we, we left almost. Um, part of us was gone for a little bit and we came back. Um, and, you know, I, I think we also believe that, you know, when you're sleeping, your, your soul actually does yeah. come out. Um, and I, I would not be surprised um, at that at all. Um, there's, there's lots of metaphysical aspects. I think it's really important to understand our conception of the soul right now, is, at least as how I've defined it, has been very sort of, oh, this is my subjective experience. There might be more to it that we just don't understand. Um, and I know I've kind of come, come across in our talk as kind of like drawing the boundary than talking about what we, what we don't know. But I think it's really important because I think more mistakes have been made in trying to sort of uh, force ourselves or convince ourselves about something that we don't know than actually just admitting actually we don't know much about this and that's okay exactly. Um, exactly. I, I, I don't know why people especially when it comes to consciousness um, even if you actually what, one really important thing Ahmed uh, and I was speaking to uh, a brother who's you know who, who's literally a neuroscientist as well. he's, he's literally a professor and he said to me literally right now in the literature we're literally going back and forth with the same ideas in a mm. new form Honestly, wow. the last hundred years of neuros of, of philosophy on this subject, at least in my opinion, has been pretty dead. It's literally been the same idea regurgitated in new ways. And then we have a back and forth in kind of like semantic evasion. And somebody just changes the words a little bit. And, and we're back to square one. You know, and, and ultimately, they will never find an answer to it. 
because no. you're, you're moving into the realm of the soul. And mm -hmm. the pre-modern, the ancients, they all understood that there was, you know, that the, there was things about the souls that just on, that were only God knew. There mm -hmm. was, there was nothing you could get because it was an immaterial phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. And things that are immaterial, we can't use our physical sciences to figure out, mm -hmm. right? We can find some interesting correlations like we mentioned here. There's actually another interesting study. Um, mm -hmm. It was done in the 1970s by a husband and a wife, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lacey. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they found in their studies that the brain would mm -hmm. send signals to the heart. Mm -hmm. But they found that the heart did not automatically obey those signals, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, which revealed mm -hmm. that the heart had its own form of consciousness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and you know and they you know the, the, their studies um i believe won, 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 won several awards or you know they became quite prominent so mm -hmm. we have these scientific studies which show that you know there there's something there's something else to the matter it's not just simply consciousness is a material thing inside of the brain it's just that there's a relationship between the heart and the mind mm -hmm. and there are these studies done. For example, there's a study done. There's a book called Born Believers by mm. Justin Barrett. Mm. And he analyzes the psychology of oh, children's yeah, religious beliefs. No, yeah, Barrett, Barrett's very interesting. I, I really enjoy his works. Yeah. So, and, and he outlines there that the children have this natural dispensation to believe in a higher being. So what one, one thing he identifies is when, um, when a child reaches the age of one, Mm -hmm. I think I think before the age of two, mm -hmm. they're able to make a distinction between what he calls artificial creations and not and natural things. So a mm -hmm. child is able to understand. So, for example, something that's natural would be the moon, the mm -hmm. sun, mm -hmm. the stars, the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So she says children realize that at a very young age. And then he says artificial things are things such as, you know, this laptop, this water bottle, this table. And he said, by the age of two, children are able to understand that human beings can create these artificial things, mm. but that human beings cannot create these natural things, these mm. things in the cosmos, mm. right? And he says that if a child was left onto an island by themselves, they would naturally infer that there was a creator behind this entire island who created it all, and that that creator was not a human being. Mm. And so Barrett makes the argument that when the child, you know, when they grow up, they're introduced to God. It fits completely into their worldview, mm -hmm. into their psychology, and that it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And an interesting thing he mentions in the book is he mentions several stories of how parents would tell their children mm -hmm. that all of this was created through a process of Darwinian evolution, of random mm -hmm. mutations, and that we came from apes. And what he finds that's so hilarious is that the children always tell them, like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense that, you know, mm. God actually makes more sense. And mm. some of the biggest conference, they, they hold big conferences in the world on teaching evolution to children because it's not mm. intuitive to them. Mm. It's something which is difficult for them mm. to ascertain. But that belief is something which is, that's the fitrah. Mm. And that fitrah in and of itself is ingrained within the heart, mm. in the qalb. Mm. And so there's, I think there's, there's with the new tools in neuroscience, um, these are things that we should delve into um, just so we can find some correlation, but there's, at the end of the day, we'll never find, you know, consciousness in and of itself and the true yeah, nature of it. Absolutely. I mean, I was, when I was, so this is actually a really good segue into one other thing. One of the reasons I get, became disenchanted with neuroscience, this is where it gets really interesting, is because these questions seemed like they had no answer to them and they were actually the questions I was 
very much interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can go and you can look at things like, so there's lots of theories of, of uh, the consciousness, of the neuroscience of consciousness. You've got global workspace theory, you've got integrated information theory, that's another one, um, and a few others that, that elude my mind at the moment. Um, I think Anil Seth is somebody. Now, here's the key thing, this is really interesting. All of these theories are informed by some view of computationalism that I'll say. Now, what in today's world is more famous than anything else? Computers. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that we superimpose our heuristic constructions to make sense of something we don't yet understand. And what you notice, if you look at the history of this, we've been doing this for a while with consciousness. Depending on the era that you're in, you'll notice that the most popular philosophical dynamic of the time is imposed on our understanding of consciousness. And, um, you know, I, I did not, I, at a certain point, you will realize that everybody's trying to answer a functional problem. So whenever okay. a neuroscientist kind of tries to explain consciousness, what they'll do is they'll say, you know, I found X portion of the brain. And if they want to get really complicated about it, they'll tell you about a network. And if they want to get even more complicated about it, they'll tell you about how the brain, you know, can use Bayesian reasoning and how there's inputs and outputs and how there's registering. And I have no doubt into the research. I'm not even going to comment on that. Uh, okay. Although I do think some neuroscience research is much more exaggerated than, than it actually comes out to be. But because I'm not uh, not working in the field, I'll lay off that. However, you're still not answering the question. But when they come out with these books and when they come out with these papers, um, in a grandiose way, I've discovered this. And I can't remember a specific example, but there, are, there have been examples of this quite literally where people have said i found it and then we find out nobody's found anything exactly (laughs) (laughs) no no calm down um and if it comes back to mind i I will definitely tell you but there's definitely been times where we've been like you know it's all over you know god has lost we've won um you know i've never seen it happen i've seen it happen so many times especially with, with this you, you know, one of the things Alama Iqbal, uh, Muhammad Iqbal from the subcontinent, the great poet philosopher said, is that the main rebuttal to empiricism mm-hmm. is consciousness. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and I think now, now would be an interesting segue to looking at what are the social consequences of adopting, you know, either solution to consciousness. If, you know, if we were, for example, let, let's focus on the first topic. If we were to say that consciousness is, is an immaterial phenomenon, what are the social consequences of a statement like that? So what happens immediately is you take this kind of moral evaluative impact or consequence away from the soul. And we were talking about this, you know, the gulb and maybe the gulbs being, you know, we're being pushed by two opposing forces. You know, that's that's the kind of Islamic dynamic that, that we're imposing. But if you go back and, you know, modernity actually starts, I would say a great way to study modernity is actually to study the history of the mind. I don't think people understand just how much of an impact it's had. So you go back to sort of the 17th century, you've got Boyle, you've got Gessondi, so Pierre Gessondi, you've got Descartes. Um, I think a lot of people would be surprised and shocked, and Hobbes especially, would be surprised and shocked to realize this. all these people knew each other. Um, uh, they were known as like the kind of republic of letters because they sort of were communicating with one another. And there was this huge change, this huge paradigm shift where the Aristotelian framework and the architecture fell. And it fell for a number of different reasons. Um, And it would take a long time to explain that. But what eventually started happening is those concepts, the concept of the soul that they had before was connected to a broader metaphysical worldview. And 
when that collapsed, all these questions about ethics, about how do we relate to God, all these questions popped out. And it was getting really difficult because what these people had done was they came to this half, I, some of them just came to either full-blown materialism, right? So Hobbes just said, reject the soul. Um, and his ideas were very much connected because what Hobbes wanted to do, you know, when we talk about the modern state, when we talk about modern politics, modern liberalism, Hobbes had a huge hand in that. And it's very difficult to describe, but I, I would not believe, uh, you know, that his idea of the mind had nothing to do with it. It definitely had something to do with his okay. political ideas of what, what he wanted to envision. Now, so, if you move, so quickly, just, just, just quickly, so you're, basically what you're saying is that when, when, when God and when religion was the foundation of their metaphysical worldview, they had answers to all these solutions. But when God was removed or when God was secularized, it created, you know, all these questions which needed to be addressed. And this is how they ultimately uh, addressed them. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And it can and it creates further conundrums. So now okay. let's move in, you know, more recently. Let's let's get into the 20th century. Right. You had movements like behaviorism. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and behaviorism literally said that everything that you do, all your mental states are just behavioral states. So there is no such thing as love. There is just, you know, you give flowers and you give chocolates. Um, and it was very easy to refute. And one wonders why it took so long to do that. I mean, one really nice rebuttal is, you know, maybe you're giving flowers, but deep down inside you want to kill that person or you're planning or, you know, you've got a motive, etc. Um, you know, so behaviorism collapsed. Think about what the social reasons for that were. People wanted religion mm. to just go. They wanted a positivist view of science. And then we also talk about positivism kind of coming into history, into politics. You cannot divorce the idea that a philosophical movement like positivism at that time didn't influence behaviorism because it did. and didn't influence our social politics and our history and the way we started thinking about people because it did. Fast forward into the 21st century, and, you know, we, we're now in the era of what I call computationalism. We're thinking about computers, etc. But if you were to read Taylor's book, Charles Taylor's book, especially the secular age in the first few chapters, something really interesting. He starts his book with anecdotes about people who have these experiences. Trying to make sense of that in a completely materialistic way of describing the human being is very difficult. And you're going to have lots of different problems. Mm -hmm. And what are the kind of social implications of that? I guess maybe I'm I'm kind of pushing the boundaries now, but it's it's definitely worth thinking about. Um, how do we get atomized individuals? Like, how do we get this rapid form of individualism by having by you know kind of conducing or kind of importing uh, a sense of individual autonomy that you are the only person, you make your own morality, um, and anything that you're bound by. Um, it's just to secure, you know, like the social contract that we have. It's just to secure serenity so that you can uh, you can have your freedom, basically, right? Mm -hmm. This hyper-individuality which liberalism has. You can only get that if you divorce normative aspects from the soul. Because if you see that human beings have an inherent soul that moves towards God, and because moving towards God means being communal, by definition, to secure certain goods, you know, certain goods in public life, you know, like coming together for jama'ah, giving mm -hmm. charity, going for, you know, going for prayer and all these sorts of different things that we do, you can do whatever you want. You're not exactly. going to get that unless you have 
you know, those normative aspects of the soul. And this is where people in the debate about consciousness never really go. They never really think about the social implications of what it means to divorce God from the picture. Uh, mm -hmm. It means I am who I am. You know, my individuality is my individuality. I can do whatever I want. Kind of, it, it goes towards that. And then that has political implications. You know, it, mm -hmm. it leads to a kind of liberalism. Now, I mean, just quickly, and, and Nietzsche said also that if, if we were to remove God, we'd have to become gods ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, a lot of what you're saying is, is, is hitting home to, to at least me because the, the idea that you can divorce God and just think that, okay, and, and the idea that you could divorce God and things will be fine is really a secular idea because in your mind, God and your relationship with God just has to do with your worship right mm -hmm. things that you can be done at home and that it doesn't have an effect on what happens outside but mm -hmm. people tend to realize this, the social consequences of removing god is an entire new way of thinking has to be created exactly and in today's age we can see the ramifications with it with these notions of you know subjective truth these ideas of gender these ideas of sexuality these ideas of consciousness of materialism these are all things that because one has neglected God and the metaphysical realities that come with God, right? The social consequences, then these questions are brought into light. And what they're starting to realize now, and consciousness is arguably the best example, is that, you know, we're asking the wrong questions. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also, uh, I don't know, you know, we've got this in the modern world, we've got the is ought gap problem, unfortunately. Now, Islam doesn't have that problem. Do you mind um, explaining what the is ought uh, is? Just because, so the is ought gap, ought is what you should do, you know, what you're more what you're morally obliged to do. Um, and I guess Hume was the first to sort of yeah. sort of propound the idea that just because you see a certain state of affairs, just because you see something, doesn't mean you can derive an ought from it. So just because I see somebody, you know, like you know, jumping off a cliff, doesn't mean he ought not to do it. Um, seeing just, the like, just, just like the, the, the famous example is like, just because you have homosexual tendencies doesn't necessarily mean you ought to engage in them exactly yeah um but in the islamic tradition we didn't have that this is ought gap doesn't exist for muslims um we have a tradition that's quite homogenous in in not homogenous in the negative sense but bring these brings these two things together essentially um and the way you know today things are constructed you know like law the way law is constructed you know a lot of people say you know sharia law is you know doesn't in, in in the Islamic sense it doesn't even make sense because for us you know you know when we have that uh, rhetorical battle where we say well me drinking water is Sharia like what are you talking about uh -huh. that's actually hitting on a big point that people don't realize we don't have a differentiation between morality and law for example people don't often understand that they don't understand that for us law and morality and how we live our lives are all connected and I'm going to bring this back to the soul. Because you can't get away with this. You can't get away with that kind of moral thinking without understanding what the person is. And to understand what the person is, what makes you you, you have to understand what's inherent to them, what's inherent to their identity and their experience. And for that, you have to, again, go back to the soul. So you see, if you push the buck far enough, what you will find is it all hinges on this concept of who are you? And then it leads to a further question. Um, I know we're, we're kind of going into the big framework now. Mm -hmm. What worldview explains my consciousness and whatever reason there could be for me even having consciousness better? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the argument for consciousness is quite good. 
people say the argument for consciousness is not a good argument for God. And I think on first principles, it isn't. You know, I would much rather people go with a contingency argument, some version of the cosmological argument. However, if you were to just put it on balances, you know, when we balance probabilities, something Richard Swinburne does. If you take a worldview and you balance the probabilities, are you more likely to get consciousness in a worldview that has God in it, where God probably has certain ends for human beings and that this is the only way they're going to connect and know him? Or would you have it on materialism, where it mm -hmm. literally makes no sense whatsoever why it would occur? Um, and then you can take this argument even forward, um, which is to say, you know, out of so many possible worlds, I mean, so many possible universes, what is there's probably more universes out there without consciousness. There could be more universes without consciousness than there are with consciousness. Mm -hmm. So even on that level, it, it doesn't make any sense. Well, so you, you know, all, 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 all you need is to prove that there is one entity that exists, which is immaterial. Exactly. exactly. Because if exactly. that has been proven, then that mean, then why would there only be one? Mm -hmm. Right. Once you have the proof of one, then you can make the argument that there are also other immaterial beings as well. And, the ramifications of that is when you open the doors and you start saying that things are immaterial, well, then things such as angels, mm -hmm. things such as demons, mm -hmm. things such as God are not necessarily that difficult to comprehend because we've affirmed that they are things which are immaterial that exist. And so mm -hmm. when, you know, when people say, oh, there's no scientific basis, there's no material basis for things like angels or demons, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Well, now that you affirm that there there is an immaterial thing called consciousness, right? Mm. Well, mm. there's also the possibility, at least they can exercise that there's a possibility that mm. immaterial beings such as angels and demons exist as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think people think they're contradiction in terms, but just like you said, Barrett's experiments, it's a double-edged sword because atheists come at us and say, you know, religion is just a side effect phenomena of a bygone evolutionary process. But then you can sort of switch the coin around and say, no, but it works the other way around as well. What if God wanted to put that in us to recognize us? And you see, it's about how you tell the story and what your metaphysical framework is, because that mm -hmm. will eventually determine how you perceive these things and what you perceive these things to be. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, consciousness in a theistic worldview has many, many more reasons for existing than it does in a materialistic worldview. So mm -hmm. just in the balance of probabilities for me, I believe that a you know, a theistic worldview explains consciousness much better because it makes me understand that there are certain moral goods. There are certain mm -hmm. goods, you know, about the community, about knowing God at the end of the day, because that's the highest commitment that we have to know God. Um, and, you know, the Sufis, for example, you know, our scholars of high asceticism, what did they say? They said, when we get to that point, we can't explain it. Mm. We can't explain it, but it's there. And we can say that with more yaqeen than, you know, what you're looking at in front of you but we can't explain it because it's an mm -hmm. experience. Um, exactly. So one, one of the beautiful things that uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf has said is that um, people today in today's age are saying, you know, we want a spiritual experience, but they don't realize that by having consciousness, they're already having a spiritual experience that every moment of a person's life right now that, you know, whether you're listening to this podcast, whether you're watching it, you know, you're being conscious that in and of itself is a spiritual experience. It's not a material experience. So I think, uh, I think that's a beautiful point. Subhanallah. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Um, and I think, um, do you know when there's like, um, halfway takes, 
I like to call this halfway takes to Islam, or at least halfway takes to theism. You uh -huh. know, I'm going to learn to breathe better. You know, I'm going to learn mindfulness, touch the water better, right? Mm -hmm. Bro, you're just halfway to Islam. <laughs> like you're yeah. almost there. Yeah. All we do is we say, yes, plus let's add meaning to that. Let's add a theoretical meaning to that. And what you see is people are trying to hijack spirituality. And this is, you know, this could be a whole podcast in of itself. It's one of the reasons I've had a huge problem with mindfulness over the years, um, where you're trying to secularize a concept without its metaphysical roots. And then what you realize is people can, you know, mindfulness training for army officers to kill people. And you think, yeah, that's definitely not what, not what the Buddhist tradition taught. But you notice that your well-being is inherently connected to your consciousness mm -hmm. because your consciousness is effectively what gives you the fullness of experience. It is what allows you to experience the fullness, the joy um, of, of living, really, uh, of transcendence. Um, and I'll keep coming back to this point again and again. I think people try to ignore the question. I think a lot more people would be convinced that their consciousness is a sign of God if they were to just sit back and reflect on their experiences and come out of the material paradigm and just sit there and think, right, today I climbed that hill and I saw that sunset. There is no way that was just my neurons working. Mm-hmm. No and, you know, I think in, in today's age, theists, you know, people of religion are always on the defensive, right? They're always having to, you know, to respond to claims. But I think consciousness is one example where theists can be on the offensive. And mm -hmm. I really think this is a it's, it's a very simple concept to understand the concept of consciousness, right? To mm -hmm. ask them, where is material proof of consciousness? Mm -hmm. Can you find, mm -hmm. you know, can you? attach you know wires to me machine machines to me and just tell me where are my thoughts and what i'm thinking right so yeah, for example yeah. I'm, I'm speaking to you ali right now mm -hmm. um, i can go quiet for 10 20 seconds and i'll be thinking and i want you to figure out what exactly i'm thinking precisely yeah. to the core and at what moment i was thinking it it's something yeah. that you know will will never be answered and mm. so this, this is an example of us using the offensive and just being honest with people and just asking where exactly is consciousness and when ultimately the answer is given that it's immaterial. Well, mm. then let's start looking at the social implications of adopting an immaterial worldview. The idea yeah. that there are certain things which are immaterial. Absolutely. And um, it reminds me of the Chinese room argument, which is one of my favorite sort of arguments um, where, you know, you put somebody, you get somebody to sort of sit in and, and this is an argument against, um, well, we could talk about this for a long time. Uh, this is an argument against <laughs> computationalism, but you can bring it back to consciousness where um, you put somebody in a room and you get them to, you put give them signs in English. Now, this person inside the room, sorry, signs in Chinese, this person inside the room doesn't know Chinese, but you give them a rule book, just like you would a computer, to sort of sort the symbols out and figure out an answer, just like you would, you know, more simple version of Google, but you've got loads of extra steps to sort of figure mm -hmm. out the letters, et cetera. And, they give you the sentence back and you know you say something he figures it out gives you back it almost feels like that person understands chinese that person doesn't understand a word of chinese right? <laughs> but this brings me back to a really important point that there is a conscious part of language that people never consider now you probably heard about that bestseller book um sapiens by yuval noah harari yeah. Yeah. i read that book and I, I was a little bit you know i was you know give credit to him for doing that much in that can, you, can you quickly just very quickly explain what the book is about? 
Uh, so the book is just about human history. And he's tried very hard to explain human history all the way from the precognitive era. So all the way we're going from the agricultural era to when humans, you know, descended, um, you know, humans were here from the very, very start of where he could find them, at least in his evolutionary, you know, way, you know, where humans were in, in his materialistic conception, all the way to where we are now. It's a humongous project to try and do that. And one of the turning points for human beings is, uh, quote unquote, what he calls the cognitive revolution about language. But what, what people really miss about language is that language is, is a, what I would call a dialogical, at least Charles Taylor calls it a dialogical feature. Um, you don't get language without talking to someone, but you also don't get languages without meanings to references. And mm. those meanings to references are phenomenal, which again, come from your consciousness. I think there is an argument to be made that language cannot arise without consciousness. At least the meanings behind the words that we choose, especially when those meanings confer some kind of experience, okay, um, that you can't translate them. It's why you can't translate one language into mm. another, essentially. You know, it's very, it, very difficult. You know, I've always had this question. Um, if you have somebody who, when they were born, um, mm. they were deaf. Mm. And so they only new sign language um mm. what language would they think in yeah it's 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 really interesting um i've thought about that question i never gotten a proper answer to it but more than people would expect i presume a lot more than people would expect i think even to them there, there'll be something there there'll be something there. it'll be in form of their conscious experience but there will be something there perhaps not language itself as we conceive of it but something there I can definitely imagine something there. Yeah, yeah but an it, 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 it's an interesting thing. And, um, you know, I, I know language is a big topic and uh, we're, we're coming to the end. But mm. one of the one of the things I wanted to mention about language, which is so fascinating, is me and you have been speaking for one hour straight. Mm. OK, mm. anybody who's studied another language, you know, a second language, they understand the language is very complex. Mm. it's very difficult there's so many rules of grammar within there i mean i'm studying arabic right now and it's extremely difficult right trying yes. to make sure that you're not making grammatical mistakes they're mm. using the right words mm. yet despite the complexity complex complexity of it mm. me and you have been speaking for one hour yeah and yeah. there have been little to no grammatical mistakes mm. um, and this is something which unconsciously we've been doing right and it's like and for me, it's just something which is so phenomenal how the syntax has been correct. We've been using advanced vocabulary and it's like almost as if it's just coming off of the tongue. And so just trying to understand maybe when you in your consciousness is the same thing as well. When you think you're thinking in grammatical sentences with syntax, with vocabulary. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I think I just think that's so fascinating. It's 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 honestly a topic within of itself. Um, and I think it's one of those. I think consciousness and language are very, very much linked. I don't think people appreciate that enough. I think people don't understand that words, syntax, meaning is derived from things that you do or experience, and then you integrate them into your consciousness. Um, and th th there's lots of, I think some people even argue that your language can affect your experience of consciousness. Now that, that was interesting. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a very broad topic mm -hmm. maybe for another day. Yeah. Um, so just on, just winding down, uh, Ali, is there is there any final thoughts you wanted to mention on the topic of consciousness? Um, just anything in general? Yeah, I think um, what I would really urge people to do is um, 
try and understand consciousness from an analytical perspective because we live in a predominantly analytical philosophy world um but you know look at tradition as well look at what tradition has to say um, i've got so much more reading to do on you know the islamic conception of consciousness but i've been seeing some amazing work out there that's being done by people and i'm sure there's amazing literature that's already been discovered that hasn't been discovered and that our scholars have talked about for years but you know in our ignorance we've just never accessed it so you know go find out but also tease out the social implications of what's going on because you know maybe in the arena of analytical philosophy consciousness might not be you know it might not have an impact on on the social sphere but just thinking about it from a pragmatic social problem what is it about our theories of the world and consciousness being one of them that makes life so difficult um and i think there's a lot more to touch on than we have today so Hmm. Yeah, I would say definitely look into that aspect of it. And you know, something that just came on my mind right now, which in and of itself is a huge topic, is mm-hmm. the idea now that now that robots are being created, oh, um, yeah. they're yeah. trying to implant consciousness within robots. I mean, I, I I fundamentally do not believe you can ever make a robot conscious for a variety of different reasons, namely being that I think functionalism although that's a very specific term for a very specific period of history and a theory. However, I don't believe computers, because of the very nature that they're built in, can ever be conscious because they are processing machines um, and processing is not the same as experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if you were to build it from neuron to neuron, maybe, I don't know, but I very much doubt you're going to get consciousness. Mm -hmm. And when you look at a lot of these robots like Sophia, Who's, a, mm. who's one mm. of the prominent robots. These are just computerized responses to people. There's no higher order thinking that's there. And it's something they're, they're still struggling to grapple with because in today's, you know, we talked about transhumanism in one of our early podcasts. Yes. And we, one of the things that Brother Tamim said is that, you know, human being, one of the, one of the problems with transhumanism is that it's an arrogant attempt at playing God. And the same thing, I think, is with trying to create consciousness in robots. So it's an arrogant attempt at trying to play God. And I think with many of these topics, such as immortality, so, uh, immortality such as creating consciousness, they'll just lead to, there'll be other failures. I'd flip that coin around and I'd say it's, it's one other thing as well. It's, it's ignorance that's coming to light in some senses as well. So even when you think about bioethics, up until about, I think, I think it was McIntyre who said this, up until about the 1960s, people weren't thinking about these questions. All of a sudden, when these new technologies in biotechnology came out, suddenly these questions started arising. But they started arising because there was compound ignorance about, you know, what is a human being? What can you do with a human? And because we thought we could ignore that question for that much time, all of a sudden, things erupted. Now, that's not saying that Muslims don't have to deal with bioethics. We do. Mm-hmm. But we have some kind of framework for what human dignity is, for what a human being's internal worth is, what they're supposed to be for. So we have some kind of external reference to touch on. Here, it exploded. And one of the funniest things was the doctors were going to the philosophers to ask for questions. And lo and behold, all the philosophers give them different answers. Because <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, and, and it's an interesting point you mentioned because um, one of the things, if you compare philosophers and you compare prophets, yeah. is that, Prof, you know, philosophers always disagree with one another. Mm-hmm. So Plato and Socrates, Aristotle, although they're all teachers and students of one another, they mm-hmm. all hold different differing views on many mm-hmm. different subjects because they're trying to arrive at things 
solely through their intellect without any revelation. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the prophets, all the prophets preached the same thing. Mm-hmm. They preached that there's one God. They preached the, the idea that there is heaven and hell, that there's angels and demons. And mm-hmm. so that's the importance of, you know, having reason, but also having revelation. So that the core principles, the foundation stay the same, but on, you know, on other topics, you're able to use your reason. Yeah, because there's a moral, because Islam has a moral fiber. It has a moral fiber to draw from. It has a reference to draw from. And I think one of the biggest problems in modernity is people lost a reference. When you lose a frame of reference, your arguments by their very definition are going to be interminable. Mm-hmm. That is the crisis of modernity. Our arguments are interminable because we don't even know what a human being is supposed to be. We don't know what a human being is supposed to do. We don't know what ends there are. What are we supposed to be doing? Why am I here? What are you supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think people, and again, it just goes back straight to that topic. Consciousness gives us a real good idea of who we are because when we can put it in some kind of metaphysical framework, like we talked about in Islam, like we talked about the qalb, like we talked about the mind, the nafs, and all of those things, and the desire to know God, to, to ascend to God, basically, then we have something to draw from and we can have some answers to some questions. Otherwise, we'll just be like those bickering philosophers that I mentioned earlier. Exactly. And so these these are the questions which books, research articles, grants will continue will continuously be given on trying to answer this question of consciousness. But ultimately, like you said, they're just going to keep going back in a circle over and over again. So... Mm-hmm. Um, we want to thank you, Ali, for, for, for joining us for this week's episode. Um, I'm sure the people gladly enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, and to all of our subscribers, our followers, please let us know what, what you found interesting about this podcast. What are other interesting episodes you would like us to do on? And if there's any, any general feedback uh, you'd like to have for us. So uh, thank you, everybody. Take care. And inshallah, we will see you next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Oh, Lana, Mo, Lana, you're